You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. our new uh, sermon series as we'll be looking through uh, Matthew chapters 1 and 2 this Christmas season, uh, seeing the the birth of Jesus as recorded by Matthew. We last Christmas looked at uh, the gospel of Luke and saw the way in which uh, the the points that interested Luke and the way that he starts his gospel. Uh, We come to Matthew and we'll see uh, the, the differences between what they record. Um, it's actually quite wonderful, if you think about it, that we have uh, four Gospels, three of which concern with this infancy narrative, and they highlight and bring out different things. And for Matthew, it's the beginning of our New Testament, and generally the church has usually included Matthew as the first. So that as you turn the pages from the Old Testament to the New, you'd be greeted with what we come to this, eve, come to this morning, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And again, it is interesting to think that as, as, a, as a writer to do something that would be attention-grabbing, genealogy doesn't usually come to mind as the most exciting and interesting thing as we turn the page. But I think as we look through it, we can see uh, in some sense why Matthew starts his gospel here. And so uh, hear these words as we look at the first uh, 17 verses, the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So it is a long list, uh, even reading it again out loud. Uh, it just seems to, to continue on. And so as we look at this uh, this morning, uh, some things to, to note, uh, if you've 
read uh, or listened to our sermon series from last year where we covered uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke has a genealogy that doesn't quite match up with Matthew's. Some of the reason for that is I do think that Matthew seems to be concerned primarily with Joseph, but also with the legal, if you will, the the dynastic um, thrust of Jesus's birth, that Jesus is the rightful king of his people. And I think that that really comes out uh, as we'll see this morning, where Luke seems to concern himself with more of the historical record. He just traces uh, Jesus's genealogy all the way through Mary. So we're here, we're, we're seeing uh, the dynasty or the dynastic uh, um, genealogy through Joseph, the adoptive father, that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. And as you can see with uh, the closing verse in verse 17, that he organizes all of, of, of history up to that point uh, into these three um, these three segments, the, the time of Abraham, the, the time of David, and the time of Christ. And so that also, I think, helps us to see that Matthew's concern, uh, nothing in here is inaccurate, but there's less precision than sometimes we would maybe want. Because in order for Matthew to achieve uh, these 14 generations, he's got to compress some of the history. And so uh, throughout the genealogy, there are times where he just drops out people. And so it's not, it's not inaccurate. And I think hopefully it's not inaccurate. It's still uh, correct. It's just that he has a theological point that supersedes him being just sort of a rote historian, not to discount Luke at all. But that, that is his concern. There's a theological point and a theological thrust to this genealogy. And that, I think, will help us uh, as we look through it because I think that does really explain when we come across uh, interesting parts in this genealogy. So as we, we look at it this morning, we, we start with this introduction in verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here he's already, again, alluding to the ways in which he will break up redemptive history for us. But at the beginning here, the, the opening words are the book of genealogies. And if you remember now, not just our Luke series, but also our Genesis series. We didn't do this on purpose, by the way, but our Genesis series, you might remember that Genesis is really outline or its organization is these are the generations of. That really Matthew here is wanting us to go back to and think of the book of Genesis because it is organized by these statements. These are the generations of. Of, and that, this, that gives us really the outline of the book of Genesis. But then, if you think of the way that Matthew's opening, he's really saying this is the generation of, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a new beginning happening now at the start of Matthew's gospel. And so I think maybe that's why it becomes in the first place as we turn to the New Testament, because it, it almost seems to be bringing forth from everything that has flown out has flowed out of Genesis, these generations, to now there's this new generation. There's something new that is happening. There's a a new beginning that is really the the culmination of God's redemptive plan, which, again, I think Matthew highlights here as the the son of David, the rightful king, the son of Abraham, the the blessings, the promise of these two uh, great covenant promises, right? That blessings would flow forth through all nations, and also a king would rule forever, and so he, he then brings about uh, his genealogy here, and he organizes it. Again, as he said, he, he organizes it based on Abraham, based on David, and based on 
the Christ. And so really the first, uh, the first five verses, verses two through six, uh, we see the blessed seed. Uh, verses seven through 11, the rightful king. And verses 12 through 16, the coming redeemer. And so as we, as we look at this section, really we're just going to have to take it line by line to see some of the things that, that Matthew is assuming in this, because much of what he's doing here, he's just assuming that we have a great and vast working knowledge of the Old Testament. And I, I wish my knowledge of the Old Testament was so well that I knew every little bit here, but trust me, I had to rely on commentaries and reading and, and just to, to see all the things that really Matthew is trying to bring out for us. So he starts uh, with Abraham and with Isaac, and really here we're, we're, we're thinking in terms of the redemptive history. We're outside the promised land at this point, and so we have Abraham, we have Isaac. We have Abraham who is promised that God will give him a, a son that eventually is fulfilled in Isaac, but really from that there seems to be this promise that there would be a seed that would come forth. Paul seems to be bringing this up later in Galatians that through this promised seed, all the nations would be blessed. And again, think about the ways in which the, the Jews would be looking at the Old Testament. There's this promise of great blessing, not just to the Jewish nation, but to all of the world. And, and as we, we were to conclude the Old Testament, that actually hasn't happened yet. In many ways, it almost seems like it's worse than when it started. And so then there's this, this desire to see this promise fulfilled. And so Matthew begins his gospel by saying he's the son of Abraham. So that he begins with Abraham and moves to Isaac and moves to Jacob. And as we, we move from Isaac, the child of promise, to Jacob, you might remember the story that it was Jacob, it was Jacob and Esau. And, and, and Esau was the firstborn, Jacob was the secondborn. But actually, throughout this genealogy, we're going to see God's sovereign choice over what's happening. Esau was born first, and he should have been the line in which uh, normal, uh, normally um, the, that's the way that the line would have continued through the firstborn son. But you'll know the story. Jacob actually obtains the birthright and is really treated as the firstborn son. And it's a theme that reoccurs throughout redemptive history and throughout this, uh, that God is, is doing things in ways that we wouldn't necessarily do them. Normally, it would be the firstborn son that would inherit a majority of the property and, and take on the family name and continue through this. But all throughout, what humanity would do is not what God would do, which I think is interesting that he seems to be highlighting that here because certainly just think of where this is all heading. How would we save humanity? And God says, I'll do it by sending my son into this World. And so I think here, even at the beginning, when you think of Jacob and Esau, expectations are turned on their head. And so what God would do is not what humanity would do. I think of David and Saul, the two kings of Israel. The, the, the humans, when they get the choice, they pick the tallest and the biggest and the best and bring just destruction upon themselves. But when God chooses, he chooses this weak, lowly shepherd boy. And that's the best king that Israel has. We move from, from, then, uh, from Jacob to Judah and his brothers. This is the, the, the first time we had um, some additional people in the genealogy. So it's not just Judah but and his brothers, and you'll know that there's the 12 tribes, and I think that's simply what he's highlighting here is Judah and the 12 tribes because, again, later we'll come to Jesus choosing disciples, and he'll choose 
12 of them. And as we move on then, Judah fathered Perez and Terah, Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is also not the easiest thing to read out publicly. And with Tamar, we actually get the first woman included in the genealogy, something which, again, Matthew does throughout, which is an unusual thing to do because at this time in this era, you just didn't include women in the genealogies. Part of that was practical, the, the way in which the line continued. It continued through uh, the man and through his name. So including women in the genealogy uh, would just be, in some sense, unnecessary information to be adding in here. But yet he includes Tamar. And I'm, I'm excited for tonight uh, for Tim's sermon on Tamar because you can think of the women he could have included. You know, Sarah, you could think of Rebecca, and yet he includes Tamar and her two sons, Perez and Zerah. And so it's just interesting to think of the women he could have chosen, and he chooses Tamar, someone who had experienced God's grace, and now she is also included in Jesus's genealogy. And so from that, we move uh, now moving into Egypt with Perez and Hezron. And as he continues in in verse 4, listing off these names, we're, we're actually now accelerating here to about 400 years as we uh, skip over some names in order that he can keep his genealogy to 14 generations. But in here, he also then includes the the second woman in the genealogy, Rahab, the prostitute, the one who helped save the spies by uh, uh, really flagging them and alerting them and then hiding them uh, in her place. And then she is saved and becomes part of God's people. And here it tells us that she marries Salmon, which was the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And then we, we move on uh, to Ruth, Boaz, and Bethlehem, a very familiar story. This is the end of the book of Ruth, which in many ways Ruth is highlighting the fact that David's great-grandmother was a non-Israelite, uh, and yet she was more righteous than uh, many of the Israelites of her, of her day. And she marries Boaz, who becomes to her a redeemer, a picture of God's love. And so here, uh, I think Ruth is included. She's a, a righteous Gentile. I think simply that's why she is here, this, this theme of Jesus coming and coming to not just his people, but to the entirety of the world we see in a small way here with the inclusion of Ruth. Because again, he could have just left her out of the genealogy, but yet he highlights this fact that she is here as a sign that God not only includes his people, but even to the ends of the earth. And he ends his first section with Jesse, the father of David, the king. And he appends there just as a reminder that David is the great king. And that is one of his main themes to show is that David is the great king. He's the, 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 the king that they wanted who was not perfect but was the best that they had. And they looked forward for a greater king uh, to come. And so this first section here, these first uh, generations, really they're the promise of the Messiah. There's this blessing to all the earth, right? This question that would have been on their minds, how is God going to do it? I mean, even today we we see and we know that Christ has come, but even still we could ask that question, how is this blessing going to go forth throughout to the entirety of the earth? But it'll go through the church, through the spirit at work. And in this promised Messiah, there's this promise of a king, 
You'll remember the story of Judah. Judah is promised that a king would come from his line. And so suddenly now in this story of the promise and blessing going forth, now there's the promise of a king to come that would rule them. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, before they have a king, they already start getting provisions for how a king should act and rule over his people. And also Matthew's just highlighting simply God's plans are not like ours. The use of second borns. Now, if we were in charge, we would do things differently. In many ways, I'm glad I'm not in charge. But God is, is, is upending expectations. I think already unconventional means and unconventional people are in Jesus' genealogy. That to me is, is fascinating just to think about. And, and we really think about the way it works today. I mean, if we look at the way that the world's standards are of power and might, the church seems very unconventional as a solution to the world's problems. A bunch of weak people brought together to worship a God who cannot be seen. And yet that's the way in which God's kingdom will come through the earth. And here, I think we see that in this genealogy. It's, it's unconventional. And already, too, uh, Matthew is highlighting by the choice of, of two of these women, Rahab and Ruth, uh, that they are non-Israelites. Uh, they just clearly, they do not belong to Israel. They do not have any of those blessings and any of those promises and deserve nothing uh, of the grace of God by birthright. Yet they're included not only into Israel and have all those privileges and blessings, but they're actually then in the genealogy, in the line of the Messiah, that they were used by God to continue this line that would one day culminate in the Messiah. And again, you just think of the, the magnitude of that, that here we have, have Gentiles being brought into the line of Israel's Messiah. And we see this in Jesus' ministry, this care and concern for outcasts, for others, for even those outside of Israel. And another thing I think Matthew's highlighting in this first section is just God's love of sinners. Again, this is the, the king of the world, the king of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. But already, his family tree is quite tainted with sinners. I mean, we just have to think of Abraham and his his trust, but then lack of trust. Or we think of Judah and Tamar and the sin that, that actually produced the next generation of that line. Rahab, who is a prostitute. Jacob, who steals his brother's birthright. That all of these people are sinners. And all of these people have found redemption and salvation. And all of them, even though they're sinful, are actually included in Jesus' genealogies. Right? Their, their, their lives matter to God, but he was also, they were privileged to be used by him in the line of his great grand plan of redemption. Again, it's, just, it's, just, it's fascinating to think that these sinful people are being used by God for his ultimate purpose and plan to redeem the world. And you think of it in terms of our life, like we are sinners. <laughs> we know our own hearts. And yet God knows our hearts and yet calls us and then uses us to send us out into this world, that our lives matter, but then we also have this privilege to be now included, in, in a sense, in Jesus' genealogy, really going the other way, that from Jesus we are brought into this family. So then Matthew continues. We get to the second section here when we see uh, really clearly that Jesus is the rightful king in verses 7 
through 11. But he, of course, he begins with David, Solomon, and Bathsheba. That David, you'll know, is this great king in which these promises would, uh, were given to him that a son would sit upon the throne and reign forever. You can see that in Psalm 72 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I think when they, we heard these promises, especially when you look at Psalm 72 and, and the ways in which they, the Jews seem to understand these promises, they, they didn't understand them uh, as a hyperbole. They, they didn't understand them as, well, yes, we'll have this really good king and he'll rule for a really good time, die at a ripe old age. They really understood it as that literally as the promise stated that there was a king who was coming who would reign forever that he would sit upon that throne. He would rule his people in justice, righteousness, and holiness for all eternity. And that was the way that they looked at these promises. And so there's this hope and this expectation that they would come one day a son of David who would actually accomplish this. And David, who by far is the greatest king that Israel had, uh, note, what, <laughs> note the way Matthew summarizes his life. He was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So he fathered Solomon by another man's wife. And that's what he summarizes here quite quickly. And from that, we were taken back to that story to realize that his, David's offspring, also in the line of Jesus, came about because David had an affair, committed adultery, and then to cover up that adultery, had this faithful servant and soldier of his murdered. And this and this was the best king that Israel had. And so Solomon comes as this promised son who in all likelihood looks like he'll exceed his father. And think of all of the, the, the expectations upon Solomon in his life. And actually in many ways he does exceed David. He builds the temple uh, under his reign. Israel not only prospers but expands and it really becomes a, a golden era, both figuratively and it seems literally, as you can read the ways in which the temple and Solomon's house just seem to be coated in gold. But, sadly, there, there seems for the life of Solomon, there's one thing he didn't excel David in. Throughout Solomon's life, the one thing he failed to do, in many ways falling far short of his father, was to worship God. For all his wisdom, his power, his wealth, and his wives, Solomon falls into idolatry and through his actions breaks the kingdom of God. After Solomon and his son Rehoboam splits the kingdom into two. I mean, Solomon's life almost seems like a, a parable highlighting for us what Adam went through. Adam, who was given all things and fails. Solomon, the wisest, greatest, most powerful man in all of the earth, it seems, who may have ever lived. He has given all of this, and yet that can't stop him from falling into sin. And so from Solomon, we come to Rehoboam, where the, the kingdom splits. And now we, we move in not just to sinners in the line of Jesus' genealogy, but just downright wicked people, people who in all likelihood uh, were not saved, were, were, were outside of God's covenant, and we get to Rehoboam and to Abijah, and Abijah to Asaph. Abijah, who is one of these mixed bags of a king who's wicked and good. Rehoboam, who seems to only do wicked things. And then from Abijah to Asaph. And here's kind of the, the first in a, a series of 
interesting bits in the genealogy that Abijah's son actually is recorded. His name is Asa, not Asaph. Uh, but Asaph is the longer form of Asa. So Mike and Michael basically is what's happening here. And so for whatever reason, Matthew records for us uh, Asaph, but it's the same, it's related to the name of Asa. And this happens later on with uh, Amos, where the one recorded for us in the Bible is Amon. And again, there's a long history there of those names being interchangeable. And actually, I think if you look up your own genealogical records, you're going to find that same thing occurring where names are spelt differently. And that's really what's happening here, these variations of these spellings. And so from Asa to Jehoshaphat, we get two good kings that bring about blessing to the people. And really, uh, Jehoshaphat's reign is, is fascinating for the fact that from him, the Gentiles nations surrounding uh, Israel actually fear the Lord. And so it seems that in these two kings' lives that the blessing of Abraham and the blessing of David come in small forms that are really pointing to a greater time to come. There's this expectation brewing here. And from Jehoshaphat, we get Joram, and Joram is just the Greek spelling of Jehoram, which is the Hebrew spelling. Uh, And this is one of these terrible kings who murders his brother. And we move from uh, Jehoram to Uzziah. And here's one of these places where Matthew compresses. So there's actually three kings that are listed or that are unlisted here that uh, Matthew is just really having to compress this in order to get his 14 generations. And I think it's, it's worth remembering that though these were three were wicked kings, Matthew has never so far been shying away from the, the wickedness, the sinfulness in Jesus's genealogy. It's likely that just he's named some wicked kings and he doesn't want to exhaust us as, as just as I don't want to exhaust you uh, this morning. And we move through uh, these kings, highlighting a few of them from Hezekiah, this well-known great king who ultimately failed uh, to Manasseh, the most wicked king in Israel's history, in Judah's history. Really, Manasseh is the one that he's the straw that breaks the camel's back, that after Manasseh, Uh, judgment is coming upon Judah, and there's nothing that can be done to turn it around. Yet the story of Manasseh is fascinating in that he actually repents. The most wicked king of Israel, the one who really brings about the impending judgment and exile, also has, by all accounts, a genuine repentance and becomes a, a faithful believer. And so not only do we have uh, those who are sinners who are saved, those who are wicked who don't appear to be, we also have those who are evil and would appear by all accounts hopeless, who then are changed by the working of God and the redeeming grace in their lives. And you think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I wonder if Paul, reading this genealogy, seeing Manasseh in there, if that brought him a certain sense of comfort, seeing that this man is in the genealogy to be this memorial reminder of God's unmerited favor and grace. And then we move to Amon, another wicked king, uh, to Josiah, who is a good king, and then Josiah to Jeconiah and his brothers. And that leads us then into the deportation, the exile to Babylon. And so this list ends, and you think about Matthew's point is he wants to highlight the fact that Jesus is the rightful king, but here at this point, the the dynasty appears to be broken. 
after this point, there will never really be truly another king of Israel. They're deported. God's judgment is upon his people. And really what I think Matthew's highlighting here is this idea of providence, punishment, and perseverance. That we see God's providence throughout this, that there are wicked kings, there are sinful kings in Jesus' genealogy. And yet, think about this, that that does not thwart God's plans. That though these kings are, are wicked, or though these kings are sinful, none of them stands in the way of God accomplishing. He can use wicked pagan kings just as he can use wicked Judean kings. But also see the fact that though they were going to be used in the line of Jesus' genealogy, God still brings judgment. Though that this line would ultimately produce the Messiah, God still brings judgment upon them. It certainly seems that in, in Israel and Judah's time that they were probably holding on to these promises that a king would come, ergo God couldn't destroy them. That they were holding on to the wrong promise. That they used these promises as a license to sin. And even Jesus seems to be dealing with this in his own day. You'll remember that there are those who say, well, our father is Abraham. And Jesus pointedly responds to them, who cares? So what? God can take these stones and make them children of Abraham. What is needed is not for you to be physically a child of Abraham. What is needed is for you to be spiritually one, to do righteousness, to repent. But also, we see here that Jesus' identification with us. I mean, again, think of, we, we think of Jesus being born in a lowly, humble estate in the manger in this small town of Bethlehem. But here we see Jesus' genealogy. His great-great-grandparents are sinners. But none of that stops Jesus from actually being born as the eternal Son of God coming into this world to atone for his own family line and to atone for ours as well. And finally, Matthew is highlighting that Jesus is the rightful king. But we have to go through the exile first before we can get to the end here. And in verses 12 through 16, the coming redeemer. So deportation or, or exile is what links these two together. So the line of kings has been broken. Now the people have been taken off into Babylon. But he highlights uh, for us here, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And so Jeconiah and Shealtiel are this bridge that connect these two things together, that the line of David actually continues on. And Shealtiel to Zerubbabel. And really after Zerubbabel, we run into names that we don't know. We don't have any information on these. So all the way from Abiad to Jacob, uh, verses 13 through 15, we just have no information about these names. I think we can assume that Matthew just has some kind of record that he's able to look at, just as we have some of the biblical record included in our Bible. But he's taking about 500 years, uh, really, to summarize this last bit. And what he's doing is he's using these names, who I, I believe they are true and accurate, but he's trying to use them to bridge us from the beginning of exile all the way to where we find ourselves with the birth of Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's covering uh, uh, huge chunks of time here. And then he ends, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And here the, the pattern breaks. It's no longer Joseph, the father of Christ, but it's Mary, 
whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the Messiah. And so he, he ends here by really showing this, this royal line that Jesus is a part of uh, through the, the adoption of his father, Joseph, that he's really truly a part of this royal line. And this is the, this is the point where you can see the, the divergence between Luke and Matthew. Because Matthew traces the genealogy actually from David through Solomon, the king, all the way down, where Luke traces Mary's genealogy from David to his son Nathan, and so that Jesus is both <laughs> the son of David by genealogy, but also the son of David in terms of the royal uh, dynasty. And so Jesus is Mary's legitimate son. He's a legitimate son of David, but through Joseph, he's also in line, if you could say, for the throne. And so as we, we come here to the end of this, it's interesting to note some of the things Matthew leaves out and that Matthew includes. Matthew speaks of the, the, the deportation of the exile to Babylon, but you'll notice he never speaks about the return back to the land. I mean, the exile would be, was this huge event in the life of Israel, huge the monarch was broken, the land was taken. How is this ever to be resolved? And Matthew actually doesn't seem to resolve it in his genealogy. There's never a time in, oh, they're back in the land now. And I think that that's likely to be deliberate, that though they returned to the land, it was never like it used to be. They, again, would never have a king. They would almost never be completely an independent nation ever again. And so in many ways, the, the, the exile didn't really end for them. They still had no king. They still had no idea how these promises would come. So when did, when did the exile truly end? I think Matthew seems to be saying the exile ends when the birth of Christ comes, that he is the one who is leading this new exodus, a theme that many of the gospel writers seem to, to pick up, that Jesus is leading this new uh, exodus. And also we get the inclusion of women. Again, a, an interesting theme. And I think part of that is, is that at the end here, when we bring up Mary, Matthew has already highlighted mothers in the genealogy. Because here he, he has to switch from Joseph to Mary because that is where the, the biological link comes from. But because mothers have already been named, it's really not a, a shocking statement to see another mother named. And so Jesus now, Matthew is saying, he's the, the culmination. He's the one who's bringing blessing to the world. He's the one who will usher us into a new land. He is one who is the rightful king of all the earth. And so really this genealogy is setting the stage for all that's yet to come through the gospel. And so just a few things that we can take from this. I think Matthew in his organization here, he's, he's just highlighting the fact that God is a God of order. That here, he, he orders all of the history uh, from Abraham to Christ in this, what he considers to be this very orderly fashion of these 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. That's really highlighting for us to see beyond it the way in which God organizes all things, right? For God, it is actually a neat and, and, and nice laid out map and plan of all things from beginning to end, where for our perspective, it looks anything but ordered. But yet God is the one who has been doing this, who promised he would do this, and now is orchestrating this, and all of it's about to come to pass. All of these promises are just swelling to a crescendo at the birth of Jesus Christ. 
and clearly for Matthew, the, the 14 generations uh, seems to be important. Uh, so much so that to get there, you have to double count names in the genealogy. So if you, if you were to go and count through all of these, don't conclude that Matthew is not good at math. Uh, but rather, again, he's making this theological point, and likely what he's doing is he's highlighting David once again. Uh, for in Hebrew, they didn't have a separate number system, so they used the letters also as numbers, and so the letters had numerical value to them. So David's name in Hebrew would be actually DVD or Dalit Vav Dalit, which would actually be 464 if you were to convert it into numbers, which for those not good at math this morning, that becomes 14. So I think here he, he's organizing these things into these 14 three blocks, which interestingly David's name is made up of three letters in Hebrew, in order to just in, in another way, in, in a way in which he can organize all of this to, to really bring to light that Jesus is David's son, that the king has come, he says, and that the king will come again. You, see, you can see the way in which this, uh, the book of Matthew ends with Jesus sending out his disciples, telling them he will be with them to the end of the age. And so in this genealogy, we see God's universal grace, his sovereign purpose, and his unlimited power. Think about all that it took to preserve this. Even that last stage of the genealogy are people we have no idea who they are, and they probably had no idea that they were being used in the line of the Messiah. And yet God is doing all of this in order to bring about his sovereign purpose of the one who brings blessing, who brings the kingdom, and who leads his people on a new exodus to a greater promised land. And so that's really the, the genealogy. That's why Matthew, I think, begins where he begins, to highlight for us that Jesus is the rightful king. And that, I think, starts to change a little bit the way we look at Christmas and his coming, that he's coming as He's coming as a king in order to save and rescue his people and bring in a kingdom. So, as we continue through Matthew, keeping that in mind that the king has come, and the rest of scripture bears out that he's coming again. And then that brings us tremendous hope that really the, the first advent is there now, that we look with anticipation to the second one. And so this morning, let us do that. Let us take hope that the King has come. He is coming again. And may that be a comfort to us during this time. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. Thank you.